Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Uh, we've been going roughly in reverse order from a lot of press, or from little press to a lot of press. Um, we actually, it's interesting, the one we're talking about tonight is actually Matthew, and the reality about Matthew is he actually has less time in the pages, stories about him, than Philip or Andrew or Thomas did. And one of the reasons for that may be that for whatever reason, he's not one of the ones John talks about. And those extra stories that we got often came from John. So Matthew gets actually less text. There's only really only one story that we know about him, and that's the calling itself. And we're going to look at that tonight. But the other reason that I, we, he, we know more about him than we do some of the other apostles is because traditionally he's understood uh, to have written uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Now, there's, a, there's argument about that, and that's totally fine. There's some uh, scholarship in the last uh, uh, 40, 50 years or so which brings that into question. Um, for what it's worth, I tend to, to uh, think that the, the traditions going back for centuries, I still tend to, I'm not persuaded by the arguments and say that Matthew didn't write the book of Matthew, but it doesn't change my faith, but it does change what we know about Matthew. So it's interesting, just to kind of as a side note, we know that Matthew is, is also known as Levi. That's what he's called in two of the Gospels, and one of them is called Matthew. And we know that he's a tax collector. And there's a fascinating thing about the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew has details about money and about taxation that none of the other Gospels have. We're going to sing a little bit later tonight. We're going to sing the Lord's Prayer. And you probably all are, let me, so the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, debts, sins. Did you know the only Gospel writer who records that as debts? is Matthew, <laughs> which again fits if he's this tax collector and he's kind of mindful of debts and he's mindful of debtors and he's mindful of money, that that would be sort of the, the way that he would remember that. That would be the way that he would sort of translate those words of Jesus. And I mean, there are things like that that link credence to the idea that the Gospel of Matthew was in fact written by a tax collector. Among other things, what we see in the calling of Matthew is we're also reflected in what seems to be important to the author and so we're just going to take a, a, a brief moment. We're going to, we're going to talk just a little bit um, about his calling. That's the only story we have. Now, we also have talked about this. We just finished up a series before this series on the apostles. We were doing a series on Matthew 13, Kingdom of Heaven, parables of Matthew in, in Matthew 13. And so we talked a little bit about Matthew. We actually talked about his calling. So, but it's worth repeating. It's such a good story. It's worth repeating for those of you who may have missed it um, at that time. And we get this story in all three of what are called the Synoptic Gospels. That means Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not in John. But we get this story in those three, and they all tell almost identical versions of the story. It's almost exactly the same with one key difference, which we'll talk about. Because they're so similar, we're just going to read one. We're going to read the one from Luke. I like the way Luke tells the story. No more profound reason than that. I kind of like the word usage and the choice that he uses. You can certainly find the same passage in Matthew 9, 9, and in Mark 2.14. And the difference in these three stories, the only difference that does come up is the name of Matthew. So in Luke and in Mark, they call him Levi. Matthew, he calls himself Matthew. 
It's clearly the same person because the story is so specific. It would be really weird if there were two different apostles that have this exact same story and we only hear about one of them. So Matthew is Levi. We'll talk about that name change in a second because I think it's relevant. So here's the story. Here's the call. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. So this is one of those stories where we suspect there's been some other encounters, right? It's probably true that Matthew and Jesus have spoken before now. If not, it's a very amazing story. Even if they have spoken before, it's an amazing story. It's amazing because we have this tax collector sitting there, and we'll talk about tax collectors in a second, but we have this tax collector sitting there. Jesus comes up to him and says, leave your job, leave your profession, leave your riches, leave your wealth, just come with me. And he does. He gets up, he leaves everything behind, and he follows Jesus. And the only difference in this story, these two sentences here tell us a lot about Matthew, and the only difference here between this and the other Gospels is the name, whether he's Levi or he's Matthew. And I don't think this is an accident, and I don't think it's just a matter of sort of nickname preference. So here's what we do now. We know that Matthew is clearly a Greek name. It is a Roman or Greek name. And we know that Levite is about as Jewish a name as you can get, right? The Levites were the tribe from which the priesthood came. So to name your son Levi is to, very, is to be very proud of your Jewish heritage. It is to stand on that. It's to say, this is who we are, right? I, I have some Scottish heritage in my, back, in my background. It'd be like if my parents had named me Mac, right? <laughs> Something like that, just to say, this is who we are. And so... He's, he's, his name is Levi, his Jewish name is Levi, his Roman name is Matthew. Question is, why does Matthew use the name Matthew and the Gospel writers use the name Levi? And here's why I think. So let's talk about what it means to be a tax collector. I know we've talked about this before and you may have heard this somewhere else, but let me just remind you. So tax collecting in the Roman world, there's a way that this worked. Well, the way it worked was that you had somebody who worked for the Roman government they would go, they would set up booths in the marketplace, they would set up booths at the entrance to the towns, and occasionally they would go to your houses. And what they would do in each of these places would they be that they would demand you pay your taxes. And there was a certain percentage that you had to pay. But there's a very interesting thing that distinguishes their tax collecting from our tax collecting, although sometimes ours is so complicated, this might be more similar than I first was thinking. But the distinction is this. People who had to pay the taxes didn't know what percentage they were supposed to pay. <laughs> the only person who knew the percentage they were supposed to pay was the tax collector. So the tax collector would go and he would tell people, this is what you owe, they would pay what they owed, and then the Roman government offered no accountability for how much the tax collector collected. The Roman government expected the tax collector to turn in a certain percentage based upon the number of people but if the tax collector collected more than that and kept more of it, everybody just sort of thought that was the perks. That was the way it worked. That was like a tip. That was what you did. Not that everybody liked that, but everybody knew that's how it worked. <coughs> and so tax collectors were, as a kind, known to be very greedy. And they were known to be a little unscrupulous. And they were known to not deal with you directly and fairly. But there's another element to Matthew being a tax collector. Being a tax collector means, by definition, you're working for who? You're working for the Roman government. The Roman government was, to the Jews, an oppressive government. They were not willing participants of the Roman government. They were, like most of the rest of the world, conquered participants of the Roman government. 
So to work for the Roman government as a Jew not only meant that you were giving up your principles and being greedy and being unscrupulous and, and being selfish, but it also meant that you were, you were really selling out your own people. That's how they would have seen it. You were selling out your own heritage for the principles of money, of greed. So this is the reputation that Matthew undoubtedly had. So what we see in this complicated, just in these two lines that we've read so far, we see this complicated story. We, somebody, we see somebody who has already sacrificed their reputation, their family, and their friends in order to be a tax collector, in order to meet their, their greed, or if you want to be more generous, their pragmatism perhaps. I think greed was probably in there. They were already willing to sacrifice everything for that, and now Jesus comes along and says, everything that you have built your life around, you gave up everything for this. Well, guess what? Now I want you to leave that. The Jewish Messiah calls this traitorous Jew back to the Jewish world and says, to do it, you have to leave everything that you already gave everything up for. You have to trade one God for another. It's a big call. And it's amazing that Matthew decides to go along with it. And I think the reason for the difference in the names is this. I think as Matthew looks back at his own story, at his own calling, at Jesus coming to him and asking him to come forward, at Jesus coming to him and recognizing who he was, for Matthew, it's really important to him to remember, to understand, I think it's even encouraging to him, to understand that when he was Matthew, when he was a traitor, when he was a Roman sellout, a collaborator, a tax collector, that's when Jesus came to him and said, come to me. Matthew is acknowledging his unappealing legacy. He's acknowledging his reputation at the time Jesus came to him. I think the reason that Luke and Mark call him Levi is because they love him and they're being gracious. <laughs> and they want Levi's memory and legacy be Levi. They want to honor him. Like God took Matthew and made him Levi in a sense again, so Mark and Luke want to be part of that. They want to say, we're going to, we're going to remember who you are in Christ. We're not going to drag you back to that reputation you have. But Matthew is just being humble and acknowledging, this is where I come from. This is who I was when Jesus came to me. So he's acknowledging his sinfulness, whereas I think Mark and Luke are showing him grace and acceptance. Hold that thought. Let's keep reading this story. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This is a great story. I love this. We don't see this happen in any of the other callings. We do see some of them talk to other people, right? Andrew went and told uh, his brother, and then Philip went and told Nathaniel. There is this desire sometimes to say, we found Jesus. But what's fascinating here is Matthew doesn't go to his fellow Jews because no one ever listened to him, and he probably doesn't have any relationships there. He also doesn't go you know, to, to other people who work in the Roman government because they don't really have a great deal of respect for him either. This is the lower echelon there. But he has friends. But who are his friends? His friends are his peers, and his peers are all the outcasts. His peers are the breakfast club. His peers are the ragamuffins. His peers are tax collectors and sinners. 
But he wants to do this, so he has a party. He just throws a big party. And I love the fact that Jesus goes to this party. Matthew's like, I'm going to have some of the most unsavory characters in our whole town come to my house. Would you come be there? It's in honor of you. And Jesus is like, cool. So he's hanging out. He's at this party with tax collectors and sinners. And notice that's how the Pharisees say it. They're not separating tax collectors and sinners, meaning that the tax collectors aren't as bad as the sinners. In fact, you could argue they're actually separating the tax collectors as being worse than the sinners. Not only do you have sinners, but you've got tax collectors. And whichever they mean, notice that Jesus doesn't defend the tax collectors. He doesn't say, well, I understand why you're concerned about the sinners, but what's wrong with the tax collectors? No, he lumps them all in with his statement about being here for the sick. It's like, you're right, they're all bad. So it shows us the reputation that's there. There's this party, it's a really sketchy party, let's just be honest. You know, we, we, it's easy to think of the Pharisees as being too uptight, but the reality is, there is a party even you would find a little sketchy. And whatever that party is, that's what Jesus was at. <laughs> whatever group of people you would be embarrassed to be seen with, maybe it's people of the other political party, maybe it's people of a different religion, maybe it's people that we think of as sinners, maybe it's the drug addicts and the prostitutes down on Central. Whoever it is, these are the people that Jesus is hanging out with willingly, and the Pharisees are saying, why is he doing it? And Jesus replies, Jesus answered, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He says, I didn't come for people who have no need of me. Jesus affirms that he's there for those who understand their need for him. It's not Jesus who said that the Pharisees and teachers could exclude themselves from the sinners category. It's the Pharisees and teachers who said that. They drew the line. They said, they're sinners, we're not, why are you with them? And Jesus doesn't argue with them about that. He simply says, well, if you're not like them, I'm not here for you. And he leaves it at that. And it becomes up to them to decide if they fit or not. It's interesting, I've been accused at various times in my life by various people as I've talked with them about the gospel or shared the gospel with them. I've, I've had a lot of accusations, most of them kindly put. Most of the people I speak with are kind, even when they disagree with me, but also condescending. And I've been accused at times of needing Christianity as a crutch. Or needing Christianity as a comfort against morality because I'm too weak-minded to accept the fact that death is real. Sometimes I've been told it's just a balm against the realities of the world because somehow I was coddled as a kid and I didn't grow up with the strength to understand that there's suffering in life. But when they say these things to me, they seem to indicate that they don't need those things, that they're okay, that they're not worried about death, and they don't need a, a, a crutch to help them through their life, and they don't need... Uh, uh, something to protect them against the despair that's in the world. And what's interesting is that I think to them, Jesus would simply say, okay, then I'm not here for you. If you don't need those, I'm not here for you. At least, not until you recognize that you also are lame and mortal and not in control of the fallen world around you. And when that realization hits you, then your crutch is here. 
<laughs> your comfort is here. Your balm is here. All three records of this story are followed by another story which seems unrelated, but it's followed. They're all followed by this, so I think it's connected, and it goes like this. It goes on, he says, they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. You can hear how this is just a discussion. This is a continuation of a the discussion. They're like, why are you eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors? And he's like, I'm here for the sick, not for the healthy. And they say, but why are you eating and drinking anyway? Don't you have more important things to be doing, more spiritual places to be? And Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. He's saying, what you don't understand is that all the bets are off the table and everything has changed because I am, in fact, the Messiah you've been waiting for. Why fast over the cost of a broken world when the hero, when the anointed, when the, when the, the God who is here to fix it all is here? This is a moment for celebration. This is a moment for rejoicing. And they recognize that. And there's a connection here, right? Only those who are aware of the need can rejoice at the solution for that need. If you don't recognize you have a need, then the solution means nothing to you. If I come up with a cure for cancer, and you have cancer, that means a whole lot more to you than if I had come up with a cure for cancer, and you have Lyme disease, <laughs> or you have nothing. Those who recognize the need can rejoice at the, at the meaning of that need. And that's what he's saying to them. The Messiah has come. This is a time for celebration. But then he goes on, and he tells them a parable. This is a very Matthew-like parable. It is in Matthew, but we're reading it from Luke today. It says, he told them this parable. No one tears, tears a piece out of a new garment to patch up an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. Here's what he's saying. Jesus says, look, you don't just take something new and patch it onto something old. If you do that, you've only ruined the new thing and the old thing. He says, you don't put new wine in old wineskins, because then you lose both the wine and the wineskins. This is a lot like what Matthew told us, what, what we heard Jesus telling them through the parables in Matthew is that, look, I am bringing some radical ideas. And if you insist on simply stitching these radical ideas onto your old notions, there's going to be problems. You're going to ruin both the old and the new. Remember, in the parables of Matthew, he did say there are treasures in the old storehouse. Old, old treasures and new treasures are both treasures. But the point Jesus is making here is that some of the things that they are clinging to some of the radical ideas that they're unable to accept are keeping them from receiving the gospel, keeping them from receiving the new life. Even though it's completely compatible with the law, it's not saying that, that what he's telling them doesn't fit with the law. What he is telling them is that it doesn't fit with their own brand of self-improvement and self-righteousness. They're looking for ways to simply patch, to add on, to make themselves just a little bit better. Jesus is saying, yeah, that won't work. That won't get you anywhere. That ruins the good ideas that you're using for self-improvement, and it's not helping you at all. They would rather rely on their understanding of the law to protect them than recognize that the law is not enough. Matthew recognized what he was counting on, 
his gauge of success, and what he was counting on for life, his wealth, he recognizes when Jesus comes to him, he finally sees it's not enough. The Pharisees haven't realized that yet. They think what they have in their own religiosity, in their own understanding, in their own self-righteousness is enough. And Jesus is saying to them, it's not enough. Now, if it's enough, why would you ever leave it to follow Jesus? But if it's not enough, why would you ever keep it to deny what isn't? And that's what Jesus is trying to explain that to them. Matthew was so taken that he wanted to bring his friends along with him. He's so taken that he wants to invite them to Jesus, and Jesus is right at home with those people. See, here's the amazing part of Jesus' message, though. He says two things simultaneously which may not feel compatible, but they so truly are because of who our God is. He says at the one time, in one moment, he says, you're not enough. You'll never be enough. And then in the same breath, he turns around and he says that you are enough for me, though. I come to you as you are. You don't have to make any changes for me to come. But as you are, it's not enough. Your attempts at self-righteousness are not enough. Your definition of success is not enough. Your self-improvement plans are not enough. Your elevated view of yourself and your control of the world, your confidence, your remorse, your commitments, your wealth, your intelligence, your religiosity, none of these are enough. But then Jesus says, I'm starting a new kingdom, and I'm inviting people, and you're welcome. You fit. You're enough for that. But you've got to let me take care of the wineskin and the wine. You've got to listen to what I'm saying, and you've got to recognize first that what you have, what you're counting on, isn't enough. Jesus is very fond of saying, you can't have two gods. You can't have two messiahs. You can't be counting on two heroes. There's only one. And if you have to let go of the one that's in the way, you grab the one that's real, then let go of the illusion or the reality. And that's what Matthew does. But Matthew is able to do that because he hears Jesus say to him, come as you are. You know your life's not enough. But if you've also been told that you yourself aren't welcome because of who you are. You're wrong. Matthew was an outcast, loved by nobody. Okay, he had some friends. Perhaps. But he wasn't loved by the Romans, and he wasn't loved by the Jews, and he's a man in the middle. I think this is why he dropped everything when Jesus called him. Because maybe the first time in his life he felt like somebody wanted him. Come to the table as you are. These are the lessons we see from Matthew. Remember, we already talked in the parables of Matthew, and we talked about the, the parables of Matthew. We talked about the fact that everyone is welcome, but not everybody wants to come. We can be a little more specific about that now, I think. Everyone is welcome, but only those who recognize their need will want to come. Only those who recognize their need will want to come. Jesus is not embarrassed to be seen with you. If, if there's one message that I wish a lot of people could simply just grasp, that we could all begin to just live with and sit with, is that Jesus is not embarrassed to be seen with you. But it's also not embarrassed to be seen with those with whom you are embarrassed. <laughs> right? Who are the people that you would be embarrassed to be seen with? Well, guess what? 
Jesus is hanging out with them too. Because everyone is watching, but only those who recognize the need will not want to come. And Jesus is not embarrassed to be seen with you. You know, one reason some people won't acknowledge their need, we do this thing as humans, we get so defensive, we refuse to acknowledge we need anything. It's because deep down we know, we know we aren't qualified. And we're afraid that if we acknowledge that, it will disqualify us. But Jesus is the opposite. Jesus is happy to sit and feast with you and your friends. Because you don't qualify. <laughs> because you recognize you need him. Everyone is truly welcome at the table. But there's something else in all this too. I think Paul explains to us also that the new wineskin, the new, the new wineskin that Jesus talks about is not just a new idea. It's not just a new container for new ideas. It's not just a new philosophy. It's not just a new understanding of the law. It's also representative of something that I believe Paul calls the new nature in us. That when we receive the gospel, Jesus makes us holy and righteous. He makes us enough. He changes us. You can't simply put the Holy Spirit into a, the, the, the flawed and broken and, and fallen container that is humanity. So Jesus does what only Jesus can do to make us fit to cohabit with the Holy Spirit of the universe. See, Jesus said the gospel doesn't just change your status. He doesn't just make a tick mark and say, you were in the sinner category, now you're in the the received category. He doesn't simply say, now I've decided to forgive you. No, he changes your very nature. The power of God in the gospel is such that it changes who you are. Your very heart, your very core, your very essence. Paul calls it the circumcision of the heart. Something that attacks the core identity of a man is used as an illustration of how all of our core identities are changed. And that's a phrase Paul didn't make up. Paul pulls it from Deuteronomy, showing that it's been God's plan all along. Ezekiel talks about giving us new hearts, hearts which are made of flesh instead of stone, hearts which are malleable, hearts which are soft. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Matthew has become Levi. Saul has become Paul. Simon has become Peter. There's a reason God is fond of changing people's names. Because I think it reflects the reality of what he does for us at the gospel. He changes our very nature and our very essence. I believe it's a supernatural but real change. I don't think it's just metaphorical. I think it actually happens. I think there's a spiritual equation that happens at the cross that's impossible for us to understand where it says that, that Jesus became the atonement for our sin and in exchange we become the righteousness God. You're no longer defined by your brokenness. You're no longer defined by your lameness. You're no longer defined by your struggles. Are those things still true as long as we live in a fallen world? Yeah. But you're no longer defined by those. You're now defined by the work of Jesus in you to make you who he created you to be. There's been a flaw in the design, a ghost in the machine, a breakdown in the system. But the maker has come and offered to put you back together. To fix it. And that's what he does. This is a weekend of remembrance for a lot of us. For so many people. Never forget has been the slogan for a lot of us ever since that time 20 years ago when the unimaginable happened. Some of you 
been born. But for me, it was unimaginable until it happened. You've lived with the reality. But it's become a, a, a memory, a time of remembrance for a lot of us. In my own family, we actually spent, uh, yesterday we watched a, a movie called Come From Away, which is a Broadway musical about, uh, there were 38 airplanes that were redirected to Newfoundland after September 11th because they couldn't, they couldn't come to American airspace. So they had to land somewhere. So they all landed in Newfoundland, this little town just doubled, tripled in population as they took hundreds and hundreds of, of airplane uh, passengers and took care of them for five days, found them food, found them places to stay, showers, found them phones so they could contact their loved ones and find out if their loved ones were okay. And so we watched this musical, it was, it was, it was so good, by the way, it was great. And, and it was just in you know, all the fields. But it was a reminder to us of some of the things, some of the good things that we saw. People helping other people. These, these people in Newfoundland were helping people from all over the world. Strangers of all sorts of creeds and philosophies just because they were human. And as we watched that, my wife said something when it was done. She said, I think this would be a great tradition to do annually, and it probably would. So my wife and I will probably watch it every year, and any of my family that we can rope into it. That was a lot easier when they were all kids. But these kind of memories, these kind of remembrances, these kind of traditions, they're important. There's moments in our lives, there's landmark things that happen which teach us lessons. And we don't want to forget the lessons, that we are a forgetful species. And so there's traditions, there's things we do. You know, for Christians, we have Christmas and Easter, there's Hanukkah, for Jews, there's, there's all sorts of things we do to remember really important moments in history and in our lives. And we do ceremonies, and we do traditions to help us remember those things. And it's interesting that as Jesus was about to be crucified hours before he's about to be taken away, to be put on his, this bogus trial, to lead to the inevitable conclusion of his death, just hours before that happens, he chooses to use those last hours to sit down with his apostles and start a tradition that he requests they continue after he's gone. A tradition which will help them remember the sacrifice and the love that Christ brought because he thought you were worth it. To help us remember the change that is made in us as we accept what happened at the cross and this incredible spiritual transformation as we identify by faith with his death we encounter our own death of ourselves and our own resurrection to a new life. But he knew. He knew that even something as momentous as the God of the universe dying on a cross like a man, somehow we would forget. Oh, we remember that it happened. But daily, moment by moment, don't we forget? I mean, wouldn't your life be completely different if you remembered at every moment that the God of the universe loves you so much he died on the cross for you and he made you a holy and righteous person? Absolutely would change who you are. And yet we go day by day by day and we don't sometimes change at all. And so Jesus instituted this tradition which is called communion. Jesus himself requested that we do this to remember him in remembrance of me, he said. Paul says it this way. 
Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which I do for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I hope you recognize the paradox in that last sentence, no matter who you are. How can you proclaim someone's death until they come? That means they have come back to life, doesn't it? <laughs> Built within this remembrance for us is the remembrance that death is not the end for Jesus, nor is it the end for us. Do I need a comfort for the understanding of mortality? You bet I do. If I believed that death were the end and nothing happened after that, my life would be very different. Because nothing would matter. That's how I see it. But to know that death is not the end, for us it's simply a door to the next room, a better room, a banquet room, a feast, that makes all the difference. We proclaim the Lord's death. There's sorrow and there's horror in that, just as there is in 9-11. But for us it means more. It means salvation. It means redemption. It reminds us to what lengths Jesus was willing to go to make us holy, to make you holy, to make me holy, to fix what was broken in you, to fix what was broken in me, to demonstrate his love and his justice for us at the cross. Without reminders, we forget. Without Jesus saying this, encouraging us to never forget, we forget all the time. We forget we're new creatures made holy. We forget God loves us intensely and deeply. We forget Christ's humility and sacrifice. We forget that our whole life has a new meaning and a purpose. And that so much around us is so vastly less important than what happened in this, the central story of the universe. That's why we do communion. That's why we do communion. To remember to give thanks as we remember. And to praise God as we do. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the Focus Groups. And we believe that you can be part of a Focus Group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at Mac.com, and I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.